Washed Up Emo sponsors New Belgium Brewing are celebrating their 30th anniversary as a company. To celebrate, they're releasing Wild Ride Amber IPA, a happy tribute to their iconic fat tire. Even better, New Belgium Brewing are giving away bikes and gear all year. Find out more information by visiting newbelgium.com. Do you ever wonder if your favorite band is emo? Tired of being in the same conversation with friends? Not knowing if you're listening to post-hardcore, screamo, emo revival, emo emo violence, even ska. We're We're here here to to help. help. The Emo Council is here staffed and ready for any question you may have. Hey, Emo Council, just wondering if Green Day was considered an emo band. Thanks. Green Day is not an emo band. Okay. From the creators of Washed Up Emo, isthisbandemo.com offers the definitive answer to the only important question of your day. Hey, is this been emo? Forgive me for running off the fine and the one thing I have to do Welcome to the Watch the Feel podcast, where we are, we are on location. Usually I'm in my bedroom by myself, but today we're on location in New York City. Welcome Ben Jorgensen from Armor for Sleep. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Tom. Not a problem. We're going to cut right to the chase. How'd you get into music? Because I know that first record, you played everything, so you had to be exposed to a <laughs> yeah. lot. Yeah, well, um, I would say, I was actually thinking about this before you came over. I got into, um, I guess, punk rock um, as a whole from skateboarding. Um, my friends and I would get this catalog called CCS, which yeah. was, uh, from California. They sold sweatshirts and t-shirts and, um... I couldn't afford anything in it. Yeah, the, a complete deck was <laughs> yeah. always, like, you know, what someone would get for, like, Hanukkah or the yeah. birthday or something. But I, I ordered a Thrasher, um, a Thrasher skateboarding video from there, and it was, like, pro- uh, the music was produced by Fat Records, so it was no effects, propaganda, all that. Oh, that's so, awesome. I watched a skate video and like that the music like changed my life so I figured out like how to order a Fat Records catalog yeah, yeah. and I started getting all of that and um that was when I was in like middle school and then at the same time I found out that there were shows going on um and my friends and I were kind of like trying to like discover how to get into these shows and the first show I went to was in my town at the Teaneck American Legion Hall and um it was some just local show thrown by kids but it was like life changing because this music that we had been slowly discovering was like right in right front, in of, front of us yeah and um so then we, we were like alright let's let's start playing in band so that was in like 6th grade 
did you just run out and get a guitar or like um, start playing drums? Well, I wanted to play drums, so I made my mom um, give me drum lessons, <laughs> and then um, I made my friend Evan play bass and my friend Jeremiah play guitar, and we started a band in sixth grade. And uh, was it totally punk rock, like no effects? Or uh, it... well, actually, you know, a little bit before um, the no effects thing, we were really into grunge, so we played a lot of Nirvana and stuff. And then when we discovered that, the band changed into. Uh, you know, pretty much trying to be a fat records band because yeah. that's what everyone's doing. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. And then, so from that, I mean, those VHS tapes were huge. I mean, mm-hmm. that's how so many people found out about bands. Yeah. Um, did you, like, were there other ones that you got after that first one? Or, um, yeah, I mean, Thrasher Magazine was big. I, I got a subscription to Thrasher and they, they actually did uh, profiles. And I, I was from New Jersey, but I remember. From Thrasher Magazine was the first time I ever heard about Lifetime, for instance, which was interesting because I could have just gone to a show yeah. about an hour away, but <laughs> um, that was kind of like the gateway to a lot of that stuff. Um, yeah, there, there were a bunch of skate videos, but for some reason Fat like produced like just a small series of them, and mm-hmm. so kind of after that, once I had, like discovered the music, then it was kind of went all off. about... Yeah, were you going to that. a ton of shows? Um, yeah, well, that was when... that was when ska was really big around here unfortunately um, yeah well no it, it was it was awesome at the beginning this was like uh before no doubt really broke and there was a venue in the city called the wetlands um which my mom and like my best friend evan's mom would take us to shows there wow that's some good and, yeah, exactly <laughs> they were really annoyed that they had to drive us uh, it was like 45 minutes from where we were in jersey but um, it was there was Moon Sky Records, yep. so bands like Ednis Goldfish, which is funny because I became really good friends with Brian Diaz, who was a singer from that band. Oh yeah, um, would play, and you know that that's I feel like a lot of you know pop punk and ska were mixing at the time, and, and a lot of bands and the people who were in that scene would, you know, when like the emo thing kind of worked its way through that, people you know kind of got into that from that whole like Scott Punk scene that mm-hmm. I think was kind of filtered over from the Southern California state. I agree The Cal- I feel like the California and then that specific scene transitioned into emo mm-hmm. in, as it, in addition to the hardcore bands playing right. with the punk bands it turned into post-hardcore uh-huh. filled into it so you're kind of right both those scenes kind of lend itself to yeah. those and it, it was interesting you know like my my friends and I were from the suburbs of New Jersey and I guess that's around the time that I started getting into like hardcore, more punk rock stuff going on in the city, and we would hang out with kids who were who were like serious punk rockers from the city. But the difference is that we would go home at like eleven thirty at night to the suburbs, you know, where we had a basement where our parents, you know, would want us to like practice instruments. So we were kind of taking a lot of the, you know, like the harder edge stuff and like taking it back to our, our yeah. little quiet communities. And like I think that's where a lot of um, other bands that would end up influencing us that we would end up playing with like the same thing happened with them they, they were being influenced by these big city bands and then going home to their mm-hmm. little quiet suburbs and really like soaking it in yeah no that's right because it's like you kind of learned a lot of stuff in the city took it back mm-hmm. and you were able to get into the city do you remember the um, the first record you owned um the first like punk record or the first record first record the first <laughs> record I owned um was the Black Album by Metallica. I bought a cassette tape from Pathmark in fourth grade, and I put it on, and I still remember, I was like on the floor in my room with headphones on, and as soon as I heard Enter Sandman, my life it. like totally changed. 
Um, so that that was definitely a huge moment for me. And the first punk one, or first like you know, scene one. The first punk album, that probably um, Punk and Drublet by No Effects was huge for me when I heard that. Yeah, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, and then I guess the same thing. The first show, like, was there like a like you'd mentioned, you know, those first ska shows. Was there one that you that other than that, like all your friends' bands playing? Was there one where you saw it and you're like, all right, I'm definitely doing this. I can see it. Um, yeah, I mean, I would say that first show at the Teaneck American Legion Hall, if, if, looking back, if that had been a crappy show, I probably wouldn't have been as stoked by local music, but the place probably held 150 kids, and people were crowd surfing, and I feel like there were 12 bands that played that day, but it was, like, the best show I'd ever been to, and, and after that, you know, I don't even remember half the bands that played, but yeah. that kind of set it off. What about the New Jersey scene? I mean, there's a lot of, there was whole articles about it, and resurgence, and... Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, just today, the you know uh, Maxwell's is closing, yeah, but then the other place is opening back up again. Mm-hmm. What what about that? What about that scene that you were you know in, and I was only kind of looking at it from outside. What, what about it was so exciting or connecting everybody? You know, that's a good question. I mean, for me, it was it was you know normal because I was in it, and that's you know I was um, playing in bands and going to shows when all that was going on, but. All I could remember is when bands like when Newfound Glory or when Saves the Day would come back into town after having toured from the rest of the country, I could see it in their faces that playing in front of, you know, the five or six hundred kids at Legion Halls in New Jersey was just a different energy there. I, I don't know what it was. I think I think maybe like, you know, the bubble of emo was kind of like broke first in New Jersey and then everyone else, you know, would wind up like riding that mm-hmm. wave. Um but I don't know, maybe maybe it was the, like we were talking about, the combination of all this hardcore and ska and pop punk coming together in the city and then mm-hmm. filtering down to kids. For some reason, it's just one of those cultural things that, you know, it just it hit a nerve with everyone in that area at that time. And I think, too, the, I've mentioned this on the podcast before, There, I think it's the last scene, there could be others and people mm-hmm. can debate, you didn't have a cell phone mm-hmm. the whole time. I know, I mean, the late, late 90s, right. it's like you didn't, it wasn't... You didn't have it out. You weren't Instagramming. You weren't tweeting. It's totally. like you went to the show and you hung out. Mm-hmm. And you saw the band. You bought merch. You went home. That's what you talked. It wasn't right. all this other kind of. You weren't out. You were kind of. You were in the moment. Yeah, exactly. And I, I mean, it's interesting for me because I think I kind of uh, read a little bit of this book called I, I don't even remember what it's called. I think it's called Your Brain on Music or something. But it was somebody breaking down the effect that music has on you. And his one of the big points in his book is that. You know, music evolutionarily has served a purpose with our society. You know, that's how we survived. One of the tools that cavemen used to survive, they bonded, you know, through music. But one of his main points is that it really makes the strongest connection in your brain when you're an adolescent. And after that point in time, you'll always like music, but it won't, you know, really be that same life-changing thing as it was at that age. And I think for me and a lot of the kids in New Jersey at that time, we happened to be at a certain age when, you know, there wasn't cell phones, there wasn't tweeting, so we were all in this pool of, like, trying to discover something really cool. And, you had to work at it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I remember, yeah, going going to the record stores and, and trying to find DIY magazines. I remember I found this one magazine called Book Your Own Fucking Life, which mm-hmm. was, um, I think, Maximum Rock and Roll put it out or something. Totally. And it had... Actually, that's the first time I ever made contact with uh, Gabe Supporta, who was in a band called Humble Beginnings, and I knew he went to my high school. 
and his oh no uh, way I didn't yeah, know that. and his address was in that book because um, he had gotten into punk rock a few years before me so I like wrote him a letter and was like hey like I uh, I'm going to the high school that you went to next year and I have a band and that's you know, awesome yeah so there was no there was no texting there was no messaging so the power of connecting with people over music I think was that much stronger then yeah, and you had that personal connection too mm-hmm. did he write back he did yeah he wrote back um, I had some like dumb questions about how to make stickers but he he even even from then he was very helpful and uh, he would prove to be uh, you know really helpful to what I was doing years later yeah um, is there any bands that didn't get recognition that you saw or liked back then that didn't I mean so many of them got big so many <laughs> I, I'm, yeah there were a bunch that got big there were a bunch that didn't um, any that you remember um, I think Penfold was a great band from New Jersey. That, uh, they got recognition, but you know, not to the level that I think they were maybe like a year earlier from getting insane recognition. They get requested um, at the DJ night. It's random. I mean, they were, they were amazing, and I, I think if maybe they had been on like a victory or an equal vision at mm-hmm. that time, they would have been, you know, huge, and then I'll you know, they mattered a lot to me and a lot of people. Yeah. And then, of course, now everyone's reuniting and mm-hmm. no one's broken up and everyone's coming <laughs> back. What are your What are your thoughts on it? I know you guys had mm-hmm. as well and kind of, what, you know, just speaking kind of the bands you were in at that time, they're all kind of filtering back if it's, you know, Fall Out Boys back. Like, so many of them are. What's sort of your, your kind of thoughts on it? You just feel like water's under the bridge and let's do this again? Yeah, I think I think it's cool. I mean, I think it's a little different in... Fall Out Boy situation because they're hasn't been that long yeah and they're kind of like back for good uh, I think uh, as far as I can tell but I think it's cool when you know everyone else has been doing it because it's just kind of like acknowledging that you know it happened in this period of time and instead of being like you know we're a full time band again it's more of like okay that was an awesome time and it meant a lot to to a lot of people and it's kind of like an acknowledgement you know that they belong to a special place in time but but not, like, in a cocky way, like, yeah. trying to, like, live off it forever, you know? Or people that missed it. Mm-hmm. There was someone that wrote me today that found out, you know, I was interviewing you, and they were like, you know, tell them that as soon as I found out they were bamboozle, I flew from this state, and then yeah. I went to this... It's like people, mm-hmm. you know, missed it, yeah. and they got into you after, and then were able to hear those songs, and yeah. it's, like, full circle for I them. mean, that's one of the coolest things about... I mean, it, it, it kind of... It's like a double-edged sword. It's like, on, on one hand... You know, it was, I feel like, at least for my band and for a lot of bands like me, we were so tied to a, a certain point of time that, you know, obviously you can't go back to. Yeah. But on the other hand, it, it had such an impact with so many people that it never is really going to go away. You know, like, um, people are still listening to Armor for Sleep records and to tons of other bands' records and, you know, are still going to mean a lot to so many people for the rest of their lives. And that's kind of, yeah, you know... It's awesome. I mean, it's, it, it was part of, it was one of those bands you mentioned from mm-hmm. that time period, mm-hmm. and it's going to get passed down. And, yeah. Okay, well, if you're talking about this scene, you need to listen to this, this, right. and this. So yeah. always get the updated address for Spotify and all those places to pay you. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, emo is obviously such a synonymous mm-hmm. word with you guys when you got roped into it, good or bad. Um, what was that initial response when you heard it? Were you... To emo? Yeah, were you trying to get away from it initially? Or were you like, you know what, it's a blessing and a curse, like, it doesn't really matter. I didn't I didn't think it, pick it as, like, a bad word then. Mm-hmm. I was also not the band, but, you know, I've talked to other people and they were, like, instantly hated it. Like, what was kind of your well, thought about it? Well, I mean, 
when I when I think from my from where I was when I started Armor for Sleep, in my mind, emo was already over. Like when you know when we had the conversations about emo bands, it was like you know knapsack and like older ghetto kids and stuff. So when when people who didn't know the scene started calling us emo, I was like, that's you know that's what it's already done, done, right? Yeah. yeah. So I mean, I guess it did kind of become like. I think I think when people who weren't into punk rock or anything at all started calling bands emo, kind of just the kids who would hang out in malls, yeah, who didn't know anything kids. about it, then that's when you were kind of like, all right, this whole thing is getting a little bit like misunderstood and misrepresented. Yeah. Just you know, not. I think the term in how it was meant to be used in the beginning between people who knew about the scene, I think that was fine. But once it be kind of became kind of a derogatory term, yeah, you know. You didn't hate the term as much as you hated the people who were using that term. That's a perfect example. So. Or a perfect uh, answer, yeah. Yeah. It was hard. I mean, you know, you'd watch 2004 or 2005, and it'd be these people referencing the term, and you're like, what are you talking about? This right. doesn't, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't fit. Yeah. Um, you know, speaking of armor, I mean, how did you how did you get hooked up with PJ and everybody and, Ar- and Anthony and Nav? Um, or, sorry, um, yeah. Tony. No, you, yeah, you got it. Uh, well... So I started the band, I just, I was in a, I played drums in, in my band in high school um, called Random Task, and to make a long story short, at the end of senior year, um, I quit the band, but I had been writing um, the songs for the album that we did senior year in high school, and we kind of had been making connections with some labels, so I made a demo for a band that I wanted to do myself, where I played all the instruments, and I sent it out to a couple labels, and like immediately... I think Victory called me back the next day and were like, hey, we want to sign your band, but I had no band. So I got in touch with Anthony, and we um, recorded our first album, and in the process of recording our first album, um, I kicked out the original guitar player and drummer, and then I knew PJ and Nash from their band Prevent Falls. Awesome um, band, if anyone hasn't got <laughs> yeah. that record. It's a good record. <laughs> yeah, they, they were, PJ and Nash were always like ahead of the curve musically. But at, at that point, Gabe uh, Supporta, um, he had already been really liking the demos that I had been making and was helping us out with like labels and all that. Um, he wanted to know if we wanted to go on tour with Midtown because they were still a band and they were going out with another band called Taking Back Sunday who were opening for them. And another band called Recover. Who Never heard any of those. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I called PJ and Nash, and I was like, all right, Anthony and I are in L.A. We're almost done recording our first album, and Gabe wants to take us on tour with Midtown, who are like the biggest band in the yeah. world, in five days. I was like, can you learn these songs in five days and go on tour for a few weeks? So they learned all the songs. We practiced once, and then we went on tour with Midtown, and we're probably really, really bad. And then we toured, you know, for years after that. Yeah. How did the EVR thing come about? I remember seeing you guys at CB's. Mm-hmm. I remember Dan telling me to show up or something. I remember seeing Gabe at the point. I don't remember what year it was, but I remember that was when he was checking. Either you had signed with them or you were, you were checking them out. I can't remember. Yeah, there were... there were. I mean, th- this, is, yeah, this is when the whole emo thing was like on the brink. Um, for instance, the first time we recorded our first CD, uh, we went to record it once, and we didn't like it, and then we went to L.A. to record it. But the first time we were recording it, re- um, we were recording it in this guy's basement in upstate New York, uh, the studio called Nada Studios. It's awesome. This guy, John McClary, owns it. And the band who were recording, like, in and out of when we were recording was My Chemical Romance, who we were friends with from New Jersey. 
And I remember one time leaving the studio and sitting in a car outside were two guys from, like, Universal or something. So, like, we knew there was something weird going on. So people from, like, really big labels were starting. They, they actually, you know, they were onto it because, you know, that was, like, two or three years away from when my chem would break. Um, so we had, like, weird labels kind of scouting us out, which we did not deserve to be scouted then. We were, you know, not <laughs> developed as a band. Yeah. But they knew that this... See, I, don't, I don't know how, how you music industry folks know this, but so they knew that this was going to be a big thing. So anyway, so they were into us and um, Gabe was kind of taking on the role as manager and he kind of steered us away from working with majors and um, was friends with Dan from Equal Vision. And, um, you know, they, they liked us for a while and we recorded our first album anyway, even though we didn't have a deal with them. And then they wound up, you know, wanting to... Um, to use that album after we had recorded it, so how was that? Though, kind of, were you like, "Wow, we're going to do this"? this yeah, is, I'm, I'm I mean, Equal Vision. I'm sure you had I records mean, of theirs. Yeah, uh, Equal Vision was always huge for me. Just, I mean, actually, not just because of Saves the Day, but Saves the Day were, you know, became my absolute favorite band, and um, Can't Slow Down was like, you know, my life for a couple years, and um, that's when I was in high school, and all my friends in high school. Their goal was to get signed by Equal Vision, you know, and, and of course Bane, we loved and uh, Converge and Equal Vision was just one of the best labels in our eyes. So a few years later, when they were interested in us, you know, that was like the coolest thing yeah, ever. That's and, awesome. Um, Dan is obviously amazing, and you were amazing when you were there. And, <laughs> not for know. this record, the next one. Yeah, yeah, not for this record, but. I mean, I just think you know, you guys doing all those things for the first time. I mean, having this record you know getting it in the mail having you know mm-hmm. t-shirts having promo posters stickers making videos mm-hmm. How, what was kind of re- it was just what I was mean, your thoughts through that was it's it- it's i mean to me there are two things going on one looking back on it now like you know this is kind of you know i'm sure why you interview people because it was such a special time for everyone you know and so many people have so much to reminisce about and there was just this magical thing that was connecting with so many kids across the country and across the world so when i look back on it it's two things it's one it's just being a part of this time where like you know my friends bands were making awesome music and kids were reacting to them mm-hmm. and being able to just be on tour in that time period was amazing you know and then the other half of it is like my personal experience through armor for sleep and that was mind-blowing as well, you know. I remember before we even had our first album out, that's when, like, um, there was mp3.com, mm-hmm. and uh, there was Napster actually still around, and that's how kids would get um, copies of our demos. So we would go into other cities without having anything formally released, and kids would know the words to every song. And, you know, sometimes it would be, like, 20 kids in one city, 10 kids in another, but... You could feel it You growing. just knew that... For those ten kids, they were, you know, they drove an hour and they knew every single word, and that was really a weird feeling. Yeah, you'd never played whatever city, and they're there. Yeah, I never played that city. We didn't even have, like, a demo tape or a CD. They just downloaded it, and I think that's the first time, too, I realized how huge the internet was, you know, because... Mm -hmm. It was more than, I mean, it was huge that the kids were knowing the songs, but they were so into it and were developing, you know, this yeah. image of us before we even got to their cities. And, you know, that's how it all started. Cool. And then, so any other thoughts from Dream to Make Believe? Like, I mean, any, like, were, was it, all right, let's get this. As soon as you were touring, you are like, all right, I have more songs or I'm ready to write the next thing? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, when, when we were touring on Dream to Make Believe, um, I feel like I was just 
trying to be better. Like, I knew I was not, you know, I was trying to be better at performing. I was trying to be better at writing songs. I was, mm -hmm. you know, just very, I guess, critical of what I, I was doing. And I appreciated everybody else coming to the shows, but in some way I felt like I didn't deserve that. And I was, like, you know, just always wanting to be better for everyone else, you know, so it wasn't like, yeah, this is awesome, my rule, it was more like, okay, I something work. cool is happening, and like, I got, I want to get better, and, you know, which is cool, you know, it was, it was a, a challenge. Yeah, um, and then I think too, I mean, the, the next record, um, you know, just being able to, I had the distinct pleasure of working the record, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, personally, I'd never been prouder of like an album launch, mm -hmm. um, it was just cold calls to places I've never called before. Um, I think everyone kind of it was the right moment MTV yeah. was still playing videos mm -hmm. Fuse were still a big influence um, you know radio was kind of that we had tried it yeah. we being EVR um, you know there was no sophomore slump with this right um, no what's kind of what were your what were your goals leading into it like you guys from aside from the label like you know you guys sitting together did you know when you you know told the guy done this record's done like wow I can't wait to well, it's interesting. So after Dream to Make Believe, I, 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 uh, when we were making a few demos for the next record, I think the first demo was Car Underwater we made, um, I really hadn't like formed the idea of you know to do this story album. But then after like the first couple songs, I was like, okay, like you know, I want to you know go ahead with this idea. And at that time, um, our management were not interfering at all. And Equal Vision, you know, like most li people think of labels, like kind of butting in in the studio and asking what's going on they were 100% like you know we trust you guys and mm -hmm. you know so everyone was really hands off and I think that was really huge because you know we could kind of take this idea um, from front to back of this album that we wanted you know the story we wanted to tell and um, everybody around us like EBR and management they really let that happen um, and you know I think that that a lot of bands can't say that for albums that they were going to do so when we finally finished it you know I think I was just satisfied that we had been able to finish this idea but we didn't necessarily know it would connect with anyone or you know it would people would like it or anything yeah. um, that was just kind of a secondary thing that kind of happened and then I mean the you know the concept of death on it you know, so many bands were, you know, emo, but this was dark. Mm -hmm. This was dark. What kind of drove you to that place? I don't know. I think it's just, I think it's just how, how old I was at the time. And, and honestly, um, we had been on tour, uh, touring on Dream to Make Believe for like maybe a couple years because we toured like a year before the album was out once we had it recorded and then a year and a half after. I don't remember how much time exactly, but I was you know, 19, 20 years old, and a part of me did feel like I was supposed to be socializing maybe in college, so it did kind of feel like a weird death to be at that point in my life, mm -hmm. you know, not in the most glamorous situations, you know, we were touring in a van playing in front of 10 people a night and, you know, having no money, so I think I wasn't thinking about, like, death every day, but it was definitely like a weird dark time even though it was so much fun because that's just not a natural way to live so i think that you know that's kind of where my head was at mm -hmm. at that time that makes sense yeah <laughs> um you know speaking of you know car underwater the you know that that video was 
pretty awesome. I thought, you know, <laughs> you having like the different personas and you know the the car scene. I, there's stuff. Obviously, seeing so many edits of it, you like know. The I have a funny story about that video. Oh yeah, <laughs> I was it, it was it was shot in Dumbo, right? Was it? Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. it was on a, a lot of it. The performance was on a roof in Dumbo, and it was freezing cold out. It was like 20 degrees. Yeah, there's one shot of Nash's like breath, mm-hmm. and it's like goes everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> What's the story about the video? The story is, um, I, I think this is really funny. Um, so we were managed by Crush Management, which are the same people that um, manage uh, Fall Out Boy and uh, Panic at the Disco. And um, they, Crush, loved the song, and uh, this awesome director named Shane Drake is the guy who directed the video. But I think um, Crush wanted the video to be maybe a little bit more over the top and a little bit more of those slices of me looking at stuff. So Shane wanted to direct... Um, the Panic at the Disco video, this is a band that nobody had heard of at the time, and Crush were like, uh, I don't know, like, you know, the Car Underwater video was good, but it wasn't over the top enough, and Shane was like, was like, okay, I'll just go over the top, and, you know, and then he had all these crazy ideas to put them in circus outfits and have elephants, and, and so Crush were like, alright, if you make it really over the top, we'll let you do the video, and so he kind of blew the Panic at the Disco video out of the water, and, you know, gave them this whole persona wearing circus clothes, mm-hmm. and and that video was huge. It won the MTV yeah, Best yeah. Video of the Year. So in a way, I think it's funny that, you know... They wanted you. Yeah. So there should have been elephants in the... Uh, yeah. Car- <laughs> <video. laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. The, uh... I remember a couple things else. The, uh... I remember the bamboozle line. Mm-hmm. Well, no, Skate and Surf. It was called Skate and Surf, mm-hmm. so... I just remember the security coming up to the, the booth and saying, what's going on? Um, we need to shut down. Like, there's too many people waiting in line. It's causing a security issue. Oh, and really? to, you know, get stuff signed from you guys. That's awesome. Um, that was pretty nuts. Mm-hmm. Did you guys, you know, what was your thoughts as it, the record came out? It had a great debut. You know, things were happening. What were your thoughts sort of as a band kind of? Um, I mean, it, it was awesome. I think, I think what really surprised me about that was it was a... Uh, I mean, first of all, the, the I think the MTV stuff that you were actually pretty much single-handedly responsible for, like you were talking about. I cold called um, them. It was crazy. Yeah, like the MTV The Drop um, was awesome, and, and all the few stuff. It was it was amazing, and it, it was exactly what I think we needed at the time, because we've been touring so much. And I think what surprised me was kind of how consistently people were buying the record over a certain amount of time like I remember that summer we were on tour on the Warp Tour and we were looking at the CD sales numbers and it, it, they didn't drop off any week it was like the same amount every single week for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and you know that that's awesome it just means that people were talking about it yeah and, definitely um, you know when something like that happens you you kind of realize like all the hard work you did and all the work that other people did kind of set a ball in motion and that it's just going to keep happening and it was to be a part of and then of course the warp tour was such a great way to network I mean mm-hmm. I feel like it was sort of the you know the in between the message board and now Facebook and Twitter it was like that's where you kind of made all your band connections right. and people what what about that then was really exciting for you those kind of early warp tours before sort of social media kind of overtook you you weren't updating six things during the day right you had a signing uh-huh. acoustic performance and you you were playing yeah well I think I think that's well, the exciting part of Warp Tour is, um, you know, all the... I think there's there was such a mystique about the scene, and since it wasn't all on the internet, since there was so much more discovery, kids from across the country 
would have to go out and see the bands and for a lot of them being at Warp Tour was like their release to be like oh yeah this band that I thought was cool is cool and you know they bring their friends you know and, and it was like a validation for the kids who went to the shows that they, you know what they had been you know listening to at home was mm-hmm. actually a real thing so <laughs> you could feel that and, and I don't I don't think that's the case much anymore no it's <laughs> you, you, could, know, you could know about the band their mm-hmm. their history every song and you never saw them yeah you know and you know it's it's weird because I think like I said when we first went on tour um, kids knew our songs from mp3.com and and from download you know we actually put up a bunch of our songs for free on our website for a long time and um so that's how people got to know us and and i think it's interesting because without the internet we wouldn't have experienced that success immediately but we're maybe the last wave of people that experienced success but didn't experience the downside of people being jaded by Mm -hmm. you know the inundation of everything being online yeah and uh you know, it's interesting to think that that m- might not ever come back to music, you know, Probably the whole not. mystery. <laughs> yeah, no, there'll be no mystery. Yeah. As soon as you have another project, they already know everything about it. Yeah. Know the songs. Mm-hmm. Um, anything else from that record that kind of sticks out to you? or From What to Do When You're Dead? Yeah. Um, no, I mean, you know, it's 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 been cool over the years that... People still request it. Yeah. People still mm-hmm. mention it. Like it's that it's that kind of record. And it's cool. I mean, I, I think of bands like you know Knapsack that I didn't get to see that, or Jawbreaker I never got to see. But in my little world of what bands were cool, like Jawbreaker was always the coolest. It's cool to like read online people being like, oh yeah, I never got to see Armor for Sleep. Like they broke up years before I went to shows, but like they're like what to do in your dead is the coolest. Like someone wrote on mine, they were like, oh I'm so glad you're doing it. Uh, top five record for me. Yeah, like that's cool to. <laughs> yeah. That, that record definitely was like, I don't know, you guys timed it. <laughs> well, yeah, I think it's just one of those things that happens. And, you know, we didn't try and force the timing because that never works. Um, but it did work for whatever reason at that time. Yeah, and then also, to, I thought, to, you know, the DVD was a good, um, what was the name of it again? Uh, Comprehensive yeah. Guide to Touring. That mm-hmm. DVD was, like, to me, I watched that and that brings me right, right back to cold calling MTV you know in the meetings like mm-hmm. it was for you guys I mean it must be fun to have you watched it since I haven't, or, you know what, you actually, totally, well, we a, should put it on right now yeah as, as, a, as a wedding present yeah, my, right. my cousin just sent it to uh, to Katrina because <laughs> she's never seen it I haven't seen it in years but. I'm embarrassed to show it to me really <laughs> why are you I'm embarrassed I'm not embarrassed <laughs> I mean, I had to be like, okay, so I smoke a lot of cigarettes in the DVD which I haven't done in you know seven years <laughs> Yeah, there's some funny. The there's the one where you guys go into some abandoned building mm-hmm. and scare yeah, yourselves. Um, yeah, was that we, pretty? That was a pretty big undertaking back then. Yeah, well, our our manager at the time, uh, this girl Bonnie, she uh, found this kid named Joey who was 19 years old, just out of film school, and was like, "Do you want to go on tour with the band for like four months?" So he just went on tour with us, brought a video camera. Actually, when we were on tour with the starting line behind a venue. Some guy jumped him and punched him in yes. the mouth and broke his jaw. So he had his jaw wired shut. I had to, like, his parents came to pick him up in upstate New York, and that was, like, the most sorry I've ever been. Obviously, they didn't blame us. But a week later, with his jaw wired shut, he came to England with us. So he couldn't talk at all, but he was still filming, drinking his his protein shakes through yeah. his teeth. Uh, he was an awesome guy. And, you know, for months we have some funny footage of us. I know that that was like the thing then, like mm-hmm. you had to have the extra DVD in your CD, 
and this was as its own self, you know, in the DVD section. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it, I don't. I, I personally think it was one of the better ones, just because it. Yeah. It really. Yeah, it had everything in there. Yeah, I think that's. Yeah. Now, now there's additional content, and you know, by the studio you get five minutes bonus footage, but like this was like an hour and twenty minute like long. Of all of you guys. <laughs> yeah. I remember the Strife D- uh, VHS from Victory. Like that was my like first yeah. be like that's touring. Yeah. You know, and I think kids mm-hmm. probably thought the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Kids would come to our shows and start. Citing like little arguments that we had in the DVD. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Well, we'll have to have a viewing. Yes. <laughs> I'll bring my copy if, you, if yours mysteriously disappears. <laughs> um, and then I think to you know move into Smile for Them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think I think it's been mentioned in every article possible. You know, the move from EVR to Warner. Mm-hmm. Guys wanted to change. You know, was was there? It was just. Obviously, there's only so much six people in a room can do. Mm-hmm. Was that something you guys were like, I think we have a shot. I think we can, you know, doing this. Because you want to get to that point where it's your, it's your, it's your job. It's your, it's your career. And I don't think, um, I mean, EVR, I mean, I don't think that record did well. But again, you guys wanted yeah, to. Yeah, I, I think, I think so. I think it was, it was just more of a, a question of like, yeah you know, what next and looking mm-hmm. ahead and, you know, we were managed by people who are managers and, you know, want, you know, that's what they want to do is constantly get the bands to the next level, level quote, yeah. quote, whatever that is. You know, in, in retrospect, I, I don't, I don't, I think we thought that's what we wanted, but I don't know if that's what we really did want. Mm-hmm. Um, but... You know, I think I think we knew what we were doing. I think we knew that if that record didn't do well, it would be hard to, uh, you know, recover from. Whereas if we stayed on EVR, we knew that we could have a record that didn't need to be, you know, like a huge hit record, like mainstream-wise, and we could still keep going. So I think, you know, I'm not blaming anybody else but ourselves. Like, we knew kind of what we were getting into. And I think, you know, <laughs> the thing happened that we were prepared for um, which is that the record wasn't a giant hit and when that happens at a major label it's different than at an indie label it's such a different number yeah Yeah. what were some of the things that good or bad that were different you know with with Warner I mean I'm sure that you know I I mean there's great experiences with all these things it's not a bad thing it's like it's each band's and each time frame is a different situation what what stuff did you guys notice were different I, I mean, you know, we're similar. I can I can look back and and pick apart a lot of things, and I think I think the truth is there were a lot of factors going on. I think one of them, um, outside from us, was the general decline of the scene started to set in around that point. You know, the oversaturation. The, the everyone got like, signed. Everyone got signed. You know, MySpace was done, um, which is you know how a lot of bands define themselves online and. Mm-hmm. Um, there was just a lot of a lot of badness going on there, and I think I think that Warner thought that whatever we had done was just going to keep going no matter what happened. You mm-hmm. know, they they weren't really interested in in looking at our fans or you know the scene as a whole, which is something that a label like Equal Vision they don't even have to consciously think about because that's you know Ingrained. what they're embedded in, and I think so. You know, a lot of the connection that we had with our fans was kind of lost in translation. I think that's one thing, and I think another thing is that 
I think we made too many compromises with the record that we made. And, you know, I, I do, you know, the first 13, 12 or 13 songs that I, I demoed for that record, um, I was like, okay, this is the record, this is the order of the songs, I'm good to go. Management... Which is what you're used to. Yeah, the management label were like, no, keep writing. So we wrote for another year and a half, and or a long time. And um, what does that do? To you? I've never had that happen. Like you, you put your heart and soul into something and say, here it is, and then they say, give me more. When? Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm a fan of of you know really working at something, and you know even a song that people can look at and say, oh, that that must have you know that's such an original idea, whoever wrote it still had to edit down whatever idea it was and, and work on it, mm-hmm. you know, put time into it. So I always thought, like, okay, well, yeah, that was the first pass, but, like, I could work and, like, hone my craft. So I think I was confused between, okay, this is me getting better and this is me just, you know, doing something for the sake of other people saying I need to keep working, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I wonder what would have happened if those original songs had come out as the record, but are those around at all? You I think them? I think dem- demos of them are around. Um, but you know, I, I think I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think you can get into that game because I think you know the decisions that we made we made for a reason. And but you know, at that time, it's such a different thing. It, yes, yeah. it, it made sense. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think you guys. Yeah, there's not. I'm not looking for like oh we regret this. It's more of in that moment, in that time, what were you guys sort of looking at and how, what was the, you know, thought process and yeah. there's not a bad thing about either thing. There's plus and minuses to both. Yeah. It was, it was, it was, let's try and do this. Mm-hmm. Let's get to that Jimmy World example where they're on a major and they were, but again, they were kind of, okay, there's this little band and right. then now they have a consistent career mm-hmm. and they make records and they, so it, it, it was, right. that's what all bands want. Yeah. And, and you know, like... You know, there, there are part, if I look at Dream to Make Believe and What to Do in Your Dead, there are parts that irk me about both of those records. You know, many mm-hmm. parts of them, but there are parts that I love. And, and the same is true for Small for them. There are parts yeah. about that record that irk me that, like, all right, I made this decision in the studio because this person wanted me to. And I can say the same about the first two records, but there are still things I love about that record. Yeah. And, you know, the truth is that some of, I think, Hold the Door, which is a song from Small for them, um, like whatever active rock radio stations did start picking it up mm-hmm. and like it almost did the thing that happens when that thing happens to a record where you know it goes berserk but for some reason it didn't and that's you know a timing thing and if you could predict when that's going to happen with what band that would be you you'd know, be a millionaire you'd be a millionaire but sometimes things just don't connect that doesn't mean it's a terrible song that doesn't mean it's the worst song ever that doesn't mean people are idiots it just means some songs match up with mm-hmm. what people are feeling and some songs don't and yeah. yeah, it's like you, you know, the the pop alternative song that happened to break at that one point. This, it wouldn't happen today. Right. You know, like if it's a Marcy Playground song, whatever, at that moment, or President of the United States, like that song yeah. came out, everyone flipped out about it. I mean, it. like, well, it smells like teen spirit, you know? People, yeah. People, that's you know, a great I read example. articles about how people say, you know, if, if the Screaming Trees song had come out, you know, like it was supposed to a month before, MTV would have lashed onto that, but... It didn't, so it smells like Teen Spirit was the next candidate. You know what I mean? Like it's crazy to think about that crazy stuff. Crazy to think about, right? <laughs> but you know, things just happen sometimes. Yeah, and then you, so what was sort of the what was sort of the end part of that? Like, I, so we the end part of that is everything was fine. It was you know we toured. I think maybe we 
I, I just think things were going downhill in the scene. Kids were getting patient because there was informa- impatient because there was information overload. So by the time the album came out, I think a lot of kids were like, you know, more apt to just, you know, trash things and judge things too quickly. So there was a lot of that going around, and we we did a tour with um, Lincoln Park, um, Project Revolution, Chris Cornell. They're playing in front of like. 20,000 people Transformers soundtrack Transformers soundtrack and um, that was great and and honestly after that tour we just kind of had this feeling of like you know we could go back and like battle out you know another record or like you know we just had an amazing tour probably the biggest tour we'll ever do and we were just at the point where we would have rather have stepped away from it than you know watch this thing kind of struggle on you know I Mm -hmm. mean I go back to one of the bands that influenced me most at the beginning of this was Refused and uh, The Shape of Punk to Come. And their whole thing with why they quit when they did is because they wanted to go out with integrity and they, you know, they'd rather watch, you know, people, you know, look back at that band with a fondness than like, oh, Refused just kept going way longer than their time, mm-hmm. you know, to like, you know, just make money doing it, you know, and we didn't want to become that. Yeah, the listeners will roll their eyes. I was at their second to last show, mm-hmm. and I've told this story a couple times, but like, <laughs> there, there were kids there. It was like 200, 200 kids at this like you know um, college campus like cafe. Mm-hmm. No one talked to them during the whole night. I got inklings that it was done, so I, <clears throat> on behalf of a couple labels, I said, "Hey, by the way, this label says goodbye. Like, thank you." But it, it wasn't like oh my god, all these people showed up because of it. It was so quiet. Like, it just right. kind of small inklings people heard it was going to happen. But seeing the shows, I don't know if you saw the reunion shows, mm-hmm. like, it was the same thing. It was such the same energy. And right. that, I, I'm fascinated, that reunion part of, like, how many years removed, it comes out, and it's like, wow, this is just as good, if not better, yeah. than when they were around. Yeah. How, like, that's, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Like, for them to know, all right, we're done. And then now we're going to stop and, and restart. And, yeah. Um, I think that plays into you guys, too. I mean, you guys had a time where you weren't around. You got back together, mm-hmm. did these shows. You felt really great about it. People, mm-hmm. great reaction to it. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, all right, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Was that for, is that how you felt? I mean, obviously, you know, the Refuse thing, they ended up touring the world. Right. Um, but is that how you guys felt for the reunion? Was that... Yeah, I mean, it felt it felt really gratifying. I mean, I think I think when we decided to kind of like hang it up, we were wanted to do so really quietly, and it kind of felt anticlimactic. <laughs> at, like looking back years later, to be like, you know, that the thing was awesome, and like, like we're not going to do it every day now, but to have had like a big ending for our fans would be nice, and it was everything we could have hoped for, and and uh, it was amazing, and and. People were so excited and so excited to come and tell stories about, you know, listening to us through the years, and it was amazing. And, um, you know, it was great. It was yeah. Perfect. So there was any other stuff from the reunion that you guys, you know, that you're like, oh wow, I had no idea about that, or was it was it a closure? Was it at that last you guys were like, oh, okay, I feel good working. Yeah, I think <laughs> I, I I think it really was like a, a closure, and because um, you didn't really have it, I don't think, right? Because it kind of. <laughs> yeah, it just kind of fizzled out the first time. So it definitely was a closure. And I think I was most, um, you know, bands spent so long blaming their fans and saying, you know, the fans don't appreciate them. But um, 
I think I was really impressed at the fact that the fans who did come to the show and even the ones who like flew from crazy places that they were accepting of the fact that they were like thank you for doing this and like you know that'll be it for us um thanks for playing the show and you know we're not going to like bitch and moan at you guys mm-hmm. and, and beg for more and that was you know amazing that they understood that this was like our time to say goodbye and they were on board with that and mm-hmm. uh, you know I didn't so much know that that was going to happen but cool um, and I love. I want to talk about the future because mm-hmm. that's what's most important. <laughs> um, are you, you're still making music, correct? Yeah, I mean, I did. A, I did a little, a little like studio project for a little bit afterwards, and then I did a solo thing. Um, put out a, a little mini album, and you know, it was great. And it's it was great that I didn't ever tour with it um, because I, I mean, for me personally, after being on tour for like eight, nine years straight, it's yeah. nice to do music in a way that's kind of on my own time and mm-hmm. not, you know, feel like I have to get in a van and, and you know, I'll keep doing it when I can and, and um, you know, I'm not going to put a gun to my head to do it. So it's out of love. It's whenever you want to... Yeah. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. So no, exactly. no, no plans for a big world tour. No plans for a big world tour. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there one song or, or, or even an album that you're most proud of? Let's say one song. Um, I don't know. I guess I guess the last song on What to Do When You're Dead is kind of cool. Uh, I think that... The one you ended the sets with. The one we ended the sets with, yeah. We kind of uh, took back a lot of musical themes from the album and like hit a bunch of stuff in the background that I don't think anyone's been able to hear. Um, still a lot of... We're very much into Pink Floyd and obviously <laughs> psychedelic stuff at that time. So I, I think that's cool that we've tricked people over the years and they still don't really know what's going yeah. on with that. <laughs> um, has there anyone that you've been sort of a fan of came up to you and said they knew Armor for Sleep or liked them or anyone that like you looked up to or um, or even just a peer that you had no idea that, like, wait a minute, you listen to my band? Yeah, or? I mean, I, I always really liked... Um, Dan Keys from Recover, I always thought he was super talented, and they liked Armor for Sleep a lot. We kind of formed a kinship on the road, and I was always like, you know, thought Dan was really talented, and um, we got to tour with Saves the Day later on, which was mind-blowing to me, because, you know, as a kid, Chris Connolly was like my idol, and he grew to really like us and I think he knew us from knowing me from being in his face at all the Save the Day basement shows <laughs> but he wound up you know having a respect for me and for us and I think that meant a lot to me that's awesome yeah, yeah. like your hero yeah exactly <laughs> um, it's funny too now they're doing house shows which that's is really awesome. cool you know I'd, hell yeah, yeah. Um, what would you want someone to remember about you know the, the time and place when you guys were around, what would you want someone to remember about Armour, even you? Um, well, I mean, I guess, I guess it's, it's awesome that you, you know, view this, the, the whole scene of music that whole time as something really special. And I think over the years, you know, people have thrown around the emo thing to kind of trash that period of time. But I think there was so much awesome music made and so many awesome people doing creative things and it was such an interesting time with you know the internet happening mm-hmm. and people using the internet 
in a way that had never been done in history, and people will never discover. You guys are figuring out at, yeah. at, on the fly. It's like, wait, MySpace? I have to do this. Yeah, it was we so were. New. I think we were one of the first bands to ever use a MySpace profile as a band profile. Before there were MySpace profiles, we just set up an account called Armor for Sleep. And remember, there were know, tour was, ones. Yeah, they'd set up a tour one. They'd live for three months, and then no uh-huh. one would go back to it again. But people would. Yeah, that would be such a big thing. Exactly. Who made your top eight, bro? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think. I think. Yeah, exactly. I think there's a lot historically. That you know, once people get over the whole emo thing, and once they stop, you know, making a joke out of it, I think I think it was a really interesting time for music. Believe the news, I'm gone for good. Call off the search, no one will know that I am down here. Right, thanks for listening to the Wash Up Eagle podcast. Um, I truly uh, love every one of you for emailing, writing, tweeting. That's a new thing. Um, <laughs> saying how much you enjoy it. Um, I'll promise to keep this going. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Washed, Emo or, uh, Washed Up Emo or on Zucker's site, uh, facebook.com slash Washed Up Emo. And if you're ever in New York City, come hang with us every first Thursday at Idle Hands. Oh, yeah. When is the next one? Uh, every first Thursday, Ben. <laughs> so, so, yeah. so we missed it? No, no, no. It's no, this, no. this coming Thursday. It's Thursday. I'll be there. First full week. All right, there we go. Ben will be there. You should be there, too. All right, until next time. Thanks. Washed Up Emo fans, thank you for listening to this podcast over the last nine plus years, or if it's your first time, welcome. It has flown by, and I appreciate each and every one of you for listening, and for this current episode you're about to hear. I do have a favor of you. I have some books out right now called Anthology of Emo, and Volume 2 was released last fall. I really think you'll dig it if you haven't heard of them. It features guests from the podcast, including Jim Atkins from Jimmy World, Chris Conley from Saves the Day, Travis Shettle from Piebald, and John Bunch from Sensefield. I've also printed volume one so you can order both check out the diy publishing at anthologyofemo.com